The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're going to be working through a set of probably one of the most used and most comprehensive set of meditation instructions that the Buddha gave, and um, it's called Mindfulness of Breathing. And uh, but a lot of times people they haven't really taken a closer look at the sixteen instructions that the Buddha gives for this practice. And it's really the you know he over those forty five years of teaching he taught in a number of different ways. And there's sort of overlapping maps about how to work with the mind, but there's sort of complete or separate systems frames of how you might work with your heart or your mind. Mindfulness of breathing is one of those sort of maps that we can use, and one of the more popular, well-used maps over these centuries since the time that the Buddha lived, about 2,600 years ago. And there's sort of a provocative story that goes along with this, where uh, this is in the early years of the Buddha's teachings, and even though the Buddha you know, had his deep insight and started to teach, didn't necessarily mean he understood how best to share what he had come to understand in his own mind. And so evidently early on, the Buddha used uh, uh, gave a lot of teachings about contemplating the impermanent, ephemeral nature of experience and of all things, really. And so he had been giving these sort of teachings. And then he would continue wandering on and groups of students, monks and nuns, lay people would stay and work with some of the senior, you know, students of the Buddha, disciples of the Buddha. The Buddha was away for a while. Eventually, he wandered back toward that place, and um, he noticed that the ranks had thinned a little bit. And he asked some of the senior people, "What happened? <laughs> Where did everybody go?" And evidently, some of the monks had committed suicide because uh, their minds got really out of balance. Nothing matters. What's the point? Right? Because, you know, when our minds get obsessive, we can dig deep holes for ourselves. And uh, our reality is subjective in the sense that how the world looks, how our life appears to us, is a function of what we're choosing to pay attention to. So if we're always paying attention to sort of negative or nihilistic aspects, well, they get relatively big because that's what we're paying attention to. And this is the thing about impermanence. When we're thinking about impermanence, it gets really nihilistic. But when we're really opening directly immediately to impermanence, it's quite liberating. So in any case, the Buddha lived and learned. He changed how he taught. And he started using mindfulness of breathing a lot more as a basic instruction. And like I said, there are 16 steps, so it really takes you all the way. It's not just about being with the breath. In fact, the the practice we did tonight, it's just the first two instructions. After that, the Buddha really opens it up. But And I'll talk about this tonight, why it's important to train in this exclusive way with a singular object. Not that it's our only meditation instruction, and those of you who've been around for a while know that most often the kind of meditation instruction you hear at the center 
is a more what we would call open or inclusive attention to the different objects of our experience, right? Whatever comes to mind, we notice that. But there is this very particular training to pick up for periods of time and to be really wholehearted. So for the next few weeks, we'll be doing this where we're practicing putting down the world, right? And we're just knowing one thing. And initially, we don't make a high bar. Okay, from the beginning of the in-breath to the end of the in-breath. What is that? Five seconds? Something like that? Can the attention, the knowing mind, be attentive to the sensations of breathing in from the very beginning of that in-breath all the way to the end of just an ordinary, unforced breath in? Oh, good. How about from the beginning of the out-breath Sustaining that present moment awareness, feeling the touching here, or feeling the rising or falling of the abdomen here, depending on it's an in-breath or an out-breath, or wherever here in the body you feel the sensations of breathing in, breathing out, can we sustain present moment awareness through one in-breath, through one out-breath? How about another in-breath? Right? As if in a light way, in a relaxed way, we're just interested in that continuity as if there is nothing else during this particular training time worth noticing, worth paying attention to other than the present moment in-breath or the present moment out-breath, whatever it might be, including those little transition points between the end of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath. And the end of the out-breath and that little gap before the next in-breath begins. So there's, right, we're really, it's not like it's really circular in the sense the continuity, the unbrokenness or the unwavering of present momentness, that's what we're interested in. And then we'll lose it. Of course we're going to lose it because more than any other habit in the mind is the habit to wonder about this and that and like, a puppy that just has had no training and just goes wherever it wants to go and it smells a smell there and then a few seconds later it's smelling something over here or seeing something there or and it's just like, you know, all over the place, this mind flitting about here and there. That's the normal mode, generally generally speaking. And now we're undertaking this particular training. Can we let all of that normal psychological conditioning to go here and there, to think about this, to attend to that, to have an opinion, to judge, to compare, to want. Can we let all of that die temporarily? I'm just on purpose being provocative, using that word die. Can we let it end? Not like by trying to not be distracted, but rather by choosing to be attentive to this one thing. So it's a positive move. It won't work if you tell yourself to stop being attentive of all that other stuff. Right? That doesn't work. Stop thinking about that, Mark. I guarantee that won't work. Don't do that. Don't notice that person over there. Don't remember that thought from the past. Don't think about tomorrow. Right? You're already, I mean, it's already a distraction when we're engaged in that kind of activity. 
But what we can do is we can cultivate an interest in what's ordinary, relatively neutral. Actually, after a while, it isn't neutral. The, the ordinary rhythm, basically any ordinary object of experience that we bring that unbroken, continuous attention to becomes beautiful. Not because it's beauti- beautiful in and of itself, but because that unbrokenness of awareness, what we call samadhi, is a beautiful quality of mind. So like you could be sitting and watching clouds lying on your back on some nice grass and noticing the clouds floating by. And for seconds at a time, your mind wasn't attending to anything but the seeing, not thinking about clouds, that if there was thinking that was way in the background, and it was just the seeing, right? Just the seeing and the knowing that these clouds were being seen. And so that mind was empty of other neurotic activity because it was full of just that simple seeing. Could be with hearing, could be with feeling sensations like we do with the breath, right? So any object will do. But it's the integrity and the wholeness and the unbrokenness of that attentiveness that is so healing and uh, refreshing for the mind, for the heart and the body because the body reflects what's going on in the mind. So if the mind has that healing of coming together and just seeing or just hearing or just feeling the sensations of breathing in and out, that continuity of mindful awareness of the touching at the nostrils, for example, then it's like a profound and refreshing vacation from whatever it is that our mind usually does, which is worrying and comparing and judging and wanting and not wanting and all the other you know, relatively neurotic, ordinary neurotic stuff that our mind is always almost always engaged in, right? But it's not doing that. Because instead, like maybe you had a few seconds tonight where there was just nothing but the touching, 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 touching of the in-breath and nothing but the touching, touching, touching of the out-breath. And after a few breaths with that kind of continuity, then you're in an altered state. You're not in your normal, ordinary state. And... I mentioned in the guided instructions that you're actually, this is really nice and it really corresponds to these first two instructions that I'll mention in just a moment, where initially as you're attending to the breath, in and out breath, you're going to notice the ordinary in and out breath, like the breath is longer, longer than it is when the mind is really settled. So it's not like a long breath and a sort of... uh, usual sense of the word. It's just relatively long compared to the breathing when the mind and body really settle down. So we call that a long breath or a gross breath or an ordinary breath. But then because of the continuity, the unbrokenness of attention, then there's a really useful barometer. The breath gets lighter, becomes more subtle, becomes more refined, it becomes more short. And there will be times when you're, you have some continuity 
and the breath will feel like it's almost not there. It's like the in and out is so, and you you know, people can kind of sometimes be like, am I getting enough air? You know, come on, you better breathe. And like, they'll take a deep breath in, but they'll lose a little bit of the steadiness, a little bit of the concentration, because they just didn't trust that the body knows what it's doing. The body knows what it's doing. The body doesn't depend on the mind telling it how to breathe. The body knows how to breathe. But, you know, our mind is a little neurotic, the thinking mind, the conditioned mind, so it may, like, want to step in. Like In patriarchy, we call it mansplaining, (laughs) that part of the brain. It's like, somebody better take control here. (laughs) And so it does. And then we lose a little of the continuity, a little of the stability, a little of the concentration. But we'll learn, oh yeah, that wasn't needed. That wasn't needed. This is a natural process from gross to subtle, from longer to shorter breath. And it's a useful feedback of how the mind is settling down. It gives us some feedback. Oh, the mind's settling down. The breath is getting lighter, more subtle, more refined and shorter, and this can be trusted. Even if it seems as if it's so subtle that there's not even any obvious breathing going on, but we just keep the attention wherever we've been feeling. You know, So if you're feeling that rising and falling in the, in the abdominal wall, then just keep the attention here. If you're feeling it as a touching in your nostrils, then just keep the attention here. If you're feeling it somewhere else, wherever you do feel it more clearly, then just keep feeling that part of the embodied experience. So don't go looking for the breath when it gets subtle. Just keep right where you've decided to be aware, to attend. Just keep attending there. Right? And know that breathing's happening. As long as you're alive, breathing's happening. Right? And it's just subtle. And it might be just like a current of energy that doesn't even seem like what you normally think of as being the breath. But maybe that's the breath now when it's very subtle. Really trust it. And get really good. Now, it's important to understand that this is just a very important specific training, but it isn't at all the whole path. The whole path is to develop the qualities of mind that can be wide open with whatever's coming and going. And to develop the mind, the heart, that can really see the underlying nature, the changing ephemeral nature, the impersonal nature of what's coming and going. That whenever there's any identification or attachment, there's a congealing that hurts, that's dukkha, suffering so that the heart releases. But like I mentioned in that sort of provocative story about the monks committing suicide, it's very easy for us to hear the different teachings and to think about them instead of see where those teachings are pointing to in terms of our experience. Like to think that everything's impersonal or to think that everything's impermanent or to think that attachment is suffering. Because these are provocative thoughts. And you know how it is with thoughts. One thought leads to another, leads to another forever, right? 
And we're just, we can become a professional thinker of Buddhist thoughts, you know. And then generally, the telltale sign is we want to talk to other people about Buddhist thoughts, and they don't want to listen. (laughs) Then you know you're more into the thoughts about the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, teachings of the mind, than you are about actually seeing things as they are. So the teachings are just jumping off points, like setting up the mind to actually look at the mind, or awareness to look at the heart and mind. And so this initial training, like I said, it's just the first two instructions out of 16. It's really to break the spell of staying on the cognitive or conceptual level. Because this continuity of awareness with an exclusive or a specific meditation object, like the touching right here at the nostrils or the rising and falling here at the abdominal wall, it like, there's a very clear choice. Like, being aware of the sensations and continuing to be aware of the thread of sensations, if I'm doing that in a whole or a full way, I can't be thinking. It's like it takes so much bandwidth. This is why the breath is such a useful meditation object because as the mind settles down, the breath gets more settled. It takes more attentiveness, right? I mean, it's relatively easy when we're breathing in an ordinary way to notice the physicality of breathing in and out, right? But when things really settle down and the breath gets subtle, it's like the quality of listening, of attentiveness, of sensitivity to the energetic experience of breathing in and out, it takes all the bandwidth of the mind. And so the mind has to abandon all other mental activity. I mean, it may be there off in the periphery, in the background, but everything in the foreground of attention is in this receptive listening or attentiveness to your meditation object, whatever it might be. We often use the breath. But it isn't the only way. You could do the same thing with some of the loving kindness or compassion practices. The Buddha taught 40 different kind of concentration objects to use. Mindfulness of the breath is one of the most common, commonly used. But the point is, it's, it's not about the breath. It's about letting go of everything else. So we're using the breath conveniently to abandon whatever else the mind might be attending to. And we're learning something. What are we learning? That the mind can abandon everything. It, can, it doesn't have to plan for that duration of one in-breath. And maybe duration of one in-breath and one out-breath and another in-breath. Right? And eventually for a couple minutes. And eventually for 10, 15 minutes. To have, relatively speaking, an unbroken thread of present moment awareness. Right? So we're training the mind, like I said, I think in the instructions, to have a little death. Because we associate the me, that's me, with all that thinking, all that neurotic planning and wondering and fantasizing and comparing and, you know, just the ordinary thinking activity. And when we take up this particular mental activity of attending to the in-breath and attending to the out-breath, where all that other stuff is cut off, 
All that other stuff we associate with me is abandoned temporarily. So that's why I call it a little death. And we feel refreshed. It's like a concentration practice, which this is more at the end of concentration practice, right? It is a real uh, refreshing death. (laughs) Putting down, then when we pick, you know, when all that other when all that psychological sort of programming comes back online, because we're back, that sits over, we feel different. We feel like there's been a vacation. It seems so much more fresh being me now. (laughs) Even though nothing's really changed, you still have the same clothes on, same room, same life in a sense, but something's changed. Having, relatively speaking, put down, ceased for a period of time, to a large degree at least, neurotic activity. So even when we pick it back up, which we will because those are deep habits, it's lighter. It's like this is the thing about neurotic activities, addictive, let's just bring to mind one of our addictive tendencies to be defensive, to always want people to treat me a certain way or whatever your particular addictive pattern might be. But you know how it is when you've had a little freedom, then when the addictive pattern shows up again, it's almost quaint, like, oh yeah, honey, I see you, I know you, I'm not taking you that seriously, yeah, I can't actually make you go away, but you don't scare me as much, right? I know to have some space, some perspective around this tendency playing out in my mind right now. You don't freak me out. Right? So this is just a simple uh, advantage, insight that comes from just doing concentration practice. So generally speaking, this first two instructions in the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing is really um, the sort of one-pointed or concentrated samatha is a Pali word that's used for practice that's all about calming, tranquilizing. And you'll see the third and fourth instructions really are about healing the mind-body relationship and the fruit of that healing is a pervasive sense of calm throughout the body. And that's the fourth instruction. We'll get there in about a month, three weeks. But I really encourage you, for those of you who sit regularly, I really encourage you to just experiment, even if, Eventually, you're going to go back to the way you like practicing. But for some weeks now, really get interested in this exclusive attention to a meditation object. And unless you have another one that you've been working with, why don't you use the breath here as a rising and falling or here at the nostrils as a touching. So let me just read what the how it goes in this sutta, this discourse. And it was this time, I don't know if you know this about the Buddhist tradition, but as the Buddha became more popular, you know, he taught for 45 years. Um, His big insight happened when he was about 35. And so he taught for 45 years, a little bit more. And uh, after he started getting really popular and had a lot of students, then the farmers started getting upset because they'd all kind of gather camp and the outskirts of town so they could walk in and get their meal 
because one of the rules that they live by is you can't store food. The Buddha really wanted them to live lightly. You can't have property. You can't have anything basically besides a couple of robes that you wrap around your body, a bowl to hold your food for the day, and you know basically that's it. Maybe um, you know cleaning cloth or something like that. But in any case, so as he got more popular, um, and when people would be like walking from town to town, they would kind of ruin the crops. So the villagers, community got organized and asked the monastics, the nuns and monks that were practicing with the Buddha, could you guys just stay put during the rains, rainy time of the year? And so that became the etiquette. And even today now, even though this isn't the problem, there's still the three-month rains retreat. So regard, depending on where the particular monastery might be, what part of the world, the rainy or the cold or whatever time of the year, the nuns and monks stay put in the monastery. They don't travel and they do more intensive practice. So this was happening now, some years into the Buddhist teaching time. And uh, evidently, there people were making good progress. And uh, he had a lot of senior people with the same insight. You know, the Buddha is always, we think of, oh, he's the wisest. But Actually, he might have been one of the best at articulating the practice, but many, many people at the time the Buddha had the same depth of insight as the Buddha did. It came to the same degree of freedom, let's say. So this isn't like the Buddha had like more freedom, but he was especially good at articulating how to practice, like from understanding his own mind, how to say stuff that other people would help them do train their minds in the same way. That's kind of what that title Buddha means. Somebody who awoke without having instructions from another wise person and somebody who's really good at articulating. Because there's another word in Buddhism for people who awaken but aren't any good at teaching. Right? They're pachita Buddhas, it's called. Right? Their freedom is the same. But they don't have the personality, the you know whatever set of skills one needs to be able to talk about and explain and create maps for people to use that are helpful for them to see what the other person has seen in terms of their own mind. So he had other teachers helping these other students, and he was pleased. And so they extended the range retreat that year. And this is where this talk, this is sort of the setup for this talk. So they decided to kind of stay put and continue to practice together because so many of the newer folks were making good progress in their practice. And how practitioners is mindfulness of breathing in and out of great fruit now and of great fruit when cultivated and made much of. Here practitioners, having gone to the wilderness, a foot of a tree or an empty hut, or an urban meditation center like Common Ground, one sits down with legs crossed and body erect, establishing mindfulness to the forefront. Always attentive, right? not forgetting, one breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. Right? So this is even, this is before the 16 instructions. The Buddha is basically just saying, can you sense the difference between being present and distracted? 
Can you sense that? Can you establish this present moment awareness so that you understand what it is? So let's just do that. Let's establish mindfulness to the fore. We don't need to move our bodies. Isn't that interesting how we are? Okay. <laughs> but it doesn't take any particular shape. doesn't take... And, and be careful also when we do this now. Don't feel like you have to direct your attention. We'll come to that with the next instruction. But just notice that when we're present, right, we notice the sitting body and we notice that the breath is there in the sitting body. And we notice the sound of my voice. And we notice the other sounds and we notice the sights. What gets in the way of sustaining present moment awareness? Just see how many seconds it can be sustained until the mind is lost in thought. So both in terms of the course, the long course of maybe decades of practice, but also in each like formal sit, 30-minute sit, 45-minute sit we might do in the morning, there's this basic rhythm. Start with just that, what we just did. Just like remember, just remember what it is to be not distracted. Don't try to meditate. Just remember, and this may take like a minute to three minutes, after you settle, find a comfortable sitting posture, then just remember what it is not to be distracted, what it is to be mindfully aware. Just get very familiar. And don't be in a hurry. Notice a hurry to, to go to your meditation practice. And just resist that for a while. Just like, I don't need to run, rush into anything. Let me just get really clear. And you might even do it long enough so you... Notice a few times where you lose it, you're in thought, but you don't know you're thinking. That's, that's what I mean by being lost in thought. There's thinking, but there's no wisdom in the mind that knows you're thinking. So you're just lost. Because there can be mindfulness and thoughts, right, where there's mental activity, but there's an awareness, present moment awareness, that knows there's thoughts and knows there's emotion, just like it can know there's seeing or know, know that there's hearing. So do that, and then so that's usually the first thing you do, and then generally, it can be useful, even if you've been practicing for decades, to do at least a couple minutes up to the majority of the time that you have that morning or that evening to do an exclusive meditation practice. So even those of you who've been practicing for a while and generally do more of an open awareness practice you still might want to do at least a couple minutes of a more exclusive meditation practice. You can use hearing. Remember, any object will do. But I'm going to be using mindfulness of breath as the example of the exclusive meditation object for the next several weeks when I'm talking about the Buddhist instructions on mindfulness of breathing. Because there are so few things about the breath 
that make it especially useful because it can be used both as an exclusive object, but then through most of the other 16 instructions, the breath is there, but not as the exclusive object of awareness, but the breath is there in the background. So even when we're contemplating freedom, ultimate releasing of the heart, breathing in, knowing that releasing of the heart, breathing out, noticing that releasing of the heart. But it's not like what's in the forefront is the non-grasping, but it's in the context of knowing that the body is breathing in and out. So the nice thing about the breath, using the breath, is it keeps us tied with this very earthly element of embodiment, here and now. It doesn't get lofty, it doesn't get conceptual, because the breath, when we understand the breath as a phenomena, it really acts as a sort of preventive um, present moment happening that sort of reveals when the mind has gotten lost in thought or is getting conceptual. Because the breath isn't the touching. I mean, we can describe it in words, of course, but describing the breath in words isn't the breath. right? The breath, the physicality of breathing in and breathing out, isn't dependent in any way on a concept. Like a being, a sensitive being, could be aware of breathing in and out even if they had no language. Right? It's not dependent on that capacity to conceptualize it. It's just dependent on that present moment awareness. So the first two instructions, once you do that, the, the kind of the instructions that are pointed to more of this exclusive attention to the breath. So this is instruction number one. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Very complicated. So remember, long here could mean sort of ordinary breath or gross breath, right? So we just need to be attentive enough to be noticing that particular characteristic of this in-breath and this out-breath. Yeah, just an ordinary out-breath. But not because we presume, but we're the awareness is actually there knowing it. So it's not like I'm presuming it's an ordinary out-breath. No, no, no. Awareness is actually following, attending to it all the way through. And then the second instruction is breathing in short, one understands or one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. short. So the first two... And this can take like decades. So don't presume, okay, I got it. I'm moving on. Sometimes you do want to move on just to kind of learn the map of the 16 steps. And we'll, you know, I'm going to guide us through all 16 over the next couple months. But in your set, you're in charge. Like when you're practicing at home, when you're not listening to someone giving you a guided meditation, then you decide whether you go beyond the first instruction. And if you're just getting distracted a lot, your breath is likely to continue to be long, I mean, relatively speaking. So just keep training, starting over, okay? Oh yeah, here's a body, there is a body. 
and there's a breath in the body. Where do I feel the breath? Oh, here. I feel the breath here. Okay. Oh, yeah. Here's the next in-breath. No, you don't, you're not going to be using this kind of language. I mean, sometimes it's helpful to add a little mental note. It could be as simple as in, when you feel the breath coming in, and the word out, or breathing out, when you feel the breath going out. Sometimes for some people, that mental noting of the breathing in and the breathing out can sort of support that continuity of attention. But just do what helps. It's really pragmatic in that way, whether you use mental noting or do your practice in silence. Of course, the mental noting would be in your own mind. You wouldn't say it out loud. Right? Breathing in. Breathing in is like this. Breathing in is being known. Just some examples of how you might mentally note it, right? if that's helpful. And then, you know, you might not even get to the end of the in-breath before your mind is lost in thought. And then it might be several breaths before you even realize you're lost in thought. And then, oh yeah, thinking, just thoughts. No need to be frustrated for having gotten distracted, right? That's a waste of time to be judging yourself. So if you do judge yourself, just notice that. If you feel upset, notice that. When you make peace with whatever it was to be distracted, okay, then just start over. There is a body. And you can even use a phrase or that move, like just to come home to the body. There is this body. And the body's breathing. How do I know? Here it is. I feel it. I feel the physicality here or here, wherever you feel it. I just start again. Can the knowing mind, can it notice, can it be sensitive? Is it willing to be sensitive to not forget? You know, the word sati, mindfulness, it really means not forgetting. Can you keep it in mind? Can you keep it in mind with enough sensitivity, enough attentiveness that you can't keep anything else in mind? Right? That's the abandoning of the world, of everything else, where this is the only thing you're knowing. Like we when we watch a good movie, we have that break. We put everything else down. We're not thinking about our to-do list. We're not even thinking that we're in a movie theater or in my living room, right? We've let all that go. So we're doing this, but in a more conscious way with the breath in and the breath out. We're really practicing letting go. So you won't know whether you're a man or a woman. You won't know whether it's evening or morning. You won't know any of that stuff because you're not asking the question, right? It's not like you couldn't answer the question if somebody said, hey, morning or evening, male or female or other, right? You would be able to answer those questions. But when you're attending to the breath, that whole conceptual world of time and gender and this and that, it's just not in the forefront. It's not. The conceptual world is now off in the background. And what's in the foreground is just this ordinary embodied dynamic of breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in and breathing out. And it's really hard to know how impactful that is until you give it a whirl. And don't don't be surprised, like you might have some like real I remember distinctly Berkeley, California, probably 1994. 
I, I just this great confluence happened. This one of my dear friends from college uh, ended up be going to grad. We were both in grad school uh, in UC Berkeley, and we lived together. And we been apart for a year or so, and we both got on fire with meditation. So when we came back, we had like each other to really, and we would sit every morning and every evening like clockwork. And I remember one evening before we'd make our evening meal. We were just sitting in his bedroom, and it's like my mind settled down, <laughs> and it was so amazing. I mean, it was like uh, I couldn't believe how good it felt. It's like this is available. This would have all I had to do was like sustain this whole, this unbroken, this non-distracted attention to the breath for this many mind moments in a row. And what arises is a really good healing feeling. It's like, whoa, somebody should, you know, somebody should talk about this. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's all around. I remember when I first discovered meditation, it was like, how did it take me so long to hear about this? And then I realized it was always all around me. You know, people, it was like, it's around, but we don't notice it. But when we really discover the power of working with the mind, training the mind, it's like, oh my God, we should all be doing, we should have been doing this since day one, or at least four years of age. We should be training our mind. Because it's so helpful, and it's not hard. It gets hard because the older we get without training the mind, we just have more history of habit energy that we have to fight against. Because the habit energy is to flit about to worry about this, think about that. And it just gets, you know, the groove, the habit just gets deeper and deeper. But wherever you are, I don't care if you're 96 years old and you've been distracted your whole life, everybody has an incentive to train their mind, right? It's to everybody's advantage to train the mind. And the first real training, once we know what it is to be present, is to use that present moment awareness to be aware of just something ordinary like breathing in and breathing out and to begin to taste the very simple and profound healing of putting down the world. It's kind of like a spiritual or psychic vacation because the whole sense of me with all my problems, all my hopes and dreams, all my fears gets temporarily put down. That's why people jump off of bridges with those bungee cords. Because doing that, you're just not going to be thinking about all that neurotic stuff. It's not the falling. It's not the free fall or the sort of near-death experience. It's the temporary break from all the neurotic thinking. So it would be so much more simple to just be aware of the breath coming in and out or you know, having sort of unsafe or illicit sex or whatever people do to kind of break the pattern of neurotic thinking, desperately looking for an entertaining movie, you know, we can just train the mind. And that has so many other uses once we do it in this more straightforward way because it sets up. We basically, in doing that, the sensitivity and the refreshment we get from the concentration it really allows for the mind 
to see things about the mind that it's been missing because it's been so distracted. And that's the whole awakening process that the Buddha talks about. That's why this is just the first step. And it's really important that you don't... Because it's a shadow in the world where people think Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings, are about just this exclusive attention and leaving the world behind when it's just the very beginning of the path. The whole point is to be in the world, in the messiness, and not afraid. But the first step is to develop a mind that can put down the world because that really sensitizes awareness so that it can see what it's not seeing. It can wake up. But we need to sort of do the work because we're directly challenging habit energy. Distraction is just a habit. Flitting about, doing you know three things at once or going, letting the attention go wherever it wants to go. It's kind of like a, a bee that's sort of fluttering about, buzzing about, looking for a flower that has, still has some nectar in it. You know, no, not there. Let's try this one. How about this one? Oh, let's go back. Maybe there was... No, okay. Have you ever watched bees at a... You know, where there are a lot of flowers, it just sort of, it seems a little bit, no, you were just there, what are you going back there for? <laughs> you know, did you check that one out? <laughs> and that's like our mind, it's just sort of doing this thing over and over again. So now we're, we're imposing some discipline, we're saying, honey, you get one thing to be aware of. This is it, just one thing. And you know, there are lots of practices, we don't really do mantra practice here, but through the ages, different spiritual religious traditions, they have all have some version, whether it's using drumming or dancing or chanting, <coughs> prayer. There's any number of ways human beings have discovered the value of putting down the world by concentrating the attention on just one thing. Now remember in the instructions, I mentioned how important, important relaxation is. So when you do this training over these next weeks, keep reminding yourself, no, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know it doesn't require tension. It requires sincerity. It requires persistence. But it doesn't require the mind or body to get tight. So if you notice that you're getting tight, just say, honey, I don't know much about what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't require being tight. So... Please relax. Let's start again. Oh yeah, there's a body here. Look at the body's breathing right here. Doesn't take much sensitivity to know that the body's breathing. Wherever you feel it physically in the body, right? Can I cultivate some interest in that ordinary physicality of the rhythm of the breath? And can I sustain that interest? No, basically, is the answer. Because it's not our habit. That habits are built by returning and starting over. So you may think it was a failed sit because for 45 minutes, all you did is return and start over and start over. But that's how you carve that new habit. You've got to start over thousands and thousands of times. And eventually, it gets to be the habit. And every once in a while, the conditions, supportive conditions will be there and you'll get several mind moments where there's continuity. And you'll get a little taste of what we call samadhi, which just means all the energies of the mind are coming together and doing one thing. 
What is the one thing they're doing? Knowing the breath coming in. Knowing the breath coming out. That unification, that coming together of the heart and mind has a particular feeling. Great. It feels great. It feels like the heart, mind, and body is having a spiritual healing. It's an unforgettable taste. And it's not Nibbana. It's not awakening. But it's really a good feeling. Right? And people get confused about it. They just feel like they're there. I just should start writing books. Just because they had a good sit and they had a little samadhi. Really? It's so, it's like an altered state when, when you have your first sit. Like I mentioned, you know, back in 84 when I had that simple, ordinary, I mean, it was just like a 30 or 45 minute sit. But for whatever reason, the mind was ready to settle down at that time. And it did. It felt really good. Right? And you just kind of, the idea is to take that inspiration and feed it right back into doing the same thing. Just stay, sticking with it. Sticking with it. Good. We're almost out of time, but we have time for one question that might have come up or even a comment about your own working in this way that you'd like to raise. But, of course, any comments or questions from the sit tonight that might be relevant before we end. I'm just wondering, um, this is, I'm sure this has happened before, but it was particularly present tonight, and I'm wondering if you or the Buddha has any advice if there's a particularly catchy pop song like in your head, and it's like, it's like the more I focus on the breath, the more the louder it just wants to get. And it's just like at a certain point, I'm just like, okay, this wants to be the soundtrack tonight. I'm just gonna groove to it because you know trying to shut it up isn't doing anything. But yeah, um, see, that's part of the nature of concentration. Is as the mind becomes more attentive to the singular object of breathing in and out, we'll learn this with the third instruction and onward. The mind is an inclusive thing. There aren't actually different compartments. The sound of the remembering the sound of the music is over here and the breath is here. There's only one place here, now, the mind, right? The mind is here and now. Everything is happening here. Like even the if I have pain in my toe, where is pain in the toe being known? Here. And when we say here we mean the mind. Our whole experience, our whole life has only happened in one place, the mind. Everything happens in the mind. There's no other place for stuff to be known. So when the concentration begins to deepen or get more steady, more clear, everything is amplified. So don't be surprised that as you get some continuity with your in-breath and your out-breath, the pain, the ordinary pain that wasn't a problem all day long is all of a sudden haunting you, you know? And a neurotic song is haunting you and everything else. But this is the training. It's like you're going to, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, they have the whole teaching about how you navigate the bardo. I don't know if people know that word, right? Like in preparation for death. But actually, that book, the Tibetan book of uh the Tibetan Book of the Dead is really about meditation practice. Because as you're concentrating, all of the other things that the mind has been attentive to are basically going to be there right in the periphery saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
And the more concentrated, the more those look-at-me's are going to be bigger because the mind is more sensitive. We're sensitizing the mind to this one thing, but it can't help but be sensitized to everything. There's no way to be really clear, really sensitive to one thing without being sensitive to everything. So just practice. Be, don't practice not noticing the, the sound or the music. Practice being interested in the breath. That's the key. Just keep hitting that one note. I'm interested in you. I know you're ordinary. I know it's just in-breath. But the interest is beautiful. And the continuity is even more beautiful. So I'm not. it's not about the breath being special. It's the continuity and the clarity and the sensitivity that's really beautiful. We're building a mental muscle. And the key is not to get distracted. And the way to not be distracted is by cultivating a pure and simple interest with the meditation object. Any object will do, but worrying about whether you have the right meditation object isn't going to help you. Find a way that you feel your breath and stick with it. When you're here, and after a few minutes you're wondering, should I be here feeling my breath? That's distraction. Just let that be in the background and stick where you decided to be. Okay? And we should probably end here at 10 o'clock. Thanks, Kyle. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths. And it's always nice to end by remembering and connecting that we do this very personal practice of meditation in order to be to become a person who can live for the benefit of all beings, engage for the benefit of all beings, to really deeply take care of our own life and all life. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.